Amen, friends. Uh, when I was growing up, there was a uh, popular commercial, the Micro Machines guy. He talked really, really, really fast. I'm going to do my best to mimic him today. I'm going to have to cut some things on the fly. I'm going to talk really fast, but I'm going to hopefully talk at a speed that you can still track with. Let me pray for us again briefly, and then we'll, get, we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we ask one thing, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would save those who are dwelling in darkness, and that you would sanctify those whom you've set apart to the light. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 48 and 49. If you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find the passage on page 41 to 43. Uh, As always, I'm going to encourage you to turn there so that you can follow along. I was going to read it. Now I'm not going to read the whole passage, but we're still going to, I think, be able to track with the main point of the passage. Uh, There are a number of major themes that run throughout the book of Genesis, and one of the most prominent themes, and the one that we focused on the most, is the tracing of the line of individuals through whom God's promised Messiah would come. So if you go back to Genesis 3, uh, verse 15, when God cursed the serpent, he said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." So immediately after the man and woman sin, God God curses the serpent and promises that a child will be born who will crush his head, the serpent's head, and in so doing, bring about the reversal of the curse and the restoration of the blessings God had promised to give to mankind. And from that point forward, we begin tracing that line of individuals. We trace the promise through Noah, who would bring rest and peace from the curse. We then trace it through one of Noah's descendants, Abraham, and then from Abraham's son, Isaac, then from Isaac's son, Jacob. And now as Jacob nears the end of his life, as his father and grandfather did before him, he calls his sons to gather around him so that he might give them a blessing before he dies. And as we've seen throughout Genesis, his blessings on each of his children serve as divine predictions of each of those sons' futures. The question is, which of Jacob's sons will receive the promise given to Abraham, the promise given to Noah, and the promise given to Adam and Eve of a serpent-crushing king who will come to rescue God's people and restore all of creation? So we're going to turn to the text and find out. Before we start looking at the passage, I was going to read it, as I said, I'm not going to now. But I want to give you the main point up front because we are going to look at most of Genesis 49 where uh, the meat of the meaning is for us. If you're taking notes, the main point of Genesis 48 and 49 is a lion-like ruler and warrior from the tribe of Judah will crush the serpent and bring abundant blessing to those who trust in him. A lion-like ruler a ruler and warrior from the tribe of Judah will crush the serpent and bring abundant blessing to those who trust in him. I want you to go ahead and look with me at the text at Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. I want you to notice what Jacob says. 
Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. This is a crucial statement for two reasons. First, it establishes Jacob as a prophet. He's telling them what's going to happen in the future and what's going to happen to the tribes that come from each of these sons. But the second reason it's important is because of the theological significance of that phrase itself and the meaning and importance it comes to take on in the rest of the Old Testament. It's elsewhere translated in latter days. And it almost always introduces predictions of the future that shed massive light on the unfolding of God's redemption. So in Numbers 24, for instance, after Balaam sees the nation of Israel spread out before him, he says to Balak, the king who called him to curse the people of Israel, he says, I will let you know what Israel will do to your people in the latter days. And then he immediately goes on to describe a star rising out of Jacob who holds a king's scepter who crushes the heads of Israel's enemies. Sounds a lot like Genesis 3. Or Isaiah 2, chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all mountains and all nations shall flow to it and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways. There are other predictions where this phrase comes into play and you weave these predictions together and what you see is that in the latter days, A star-like king will crush his people's enemies, and in response to that defeat, the nations will come to worship at his mountain, being drawn to his goodness, and seeking to walk in his ways. And we haven't even looked at what Jacob says yet. I just want to point all that out to underscore that what he's about to say is massively significant for us. So what does he go on to say about his sons? Let's take a look. We're going to move quickly through these so that we can focus on the most important of these predictions. Follow along with me. In verses three and four, we see that Reuben, though he was Jacob's firstborn, he held the place of preeminence in the family because he was the firstborn, would have his place of preeminence taken from him because of the sin that he committed back against his father back in chapter 35. Likewise, Simeon and Levi, if you continue following, they receive ominous blessings from Jacob. These are more aptly described as described as curses. Because of the violence they carried out against the Shechemites, notice how strongly Jacob speaks against their behavior in verse 7. Cursed be their anger. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel, meaning they won't have an inheritance in the land when the Israelites come into the land. We've seen this throughout Genesis, haven't we? The older brother Cain was cursed and driven out of the land for killing the younger Abel. Ham was cursed for his sin against Noah. Ishmael was cast out for mocking Isaac. Older Esau didn't receive the blessing because he sold his birthright to Jacob. And now Jacob's older sons likewise don't receive the blessing because of their sins. Now skip down over verses uh, 8 through 12. We're going to come back to Judah's and just keep looking at what you see there. Zebulun will live near the region of Tyre and Sidon. Issachar. He's going to be like Lot. He's going to be attracted to the lushness of the land of Canaan and become a slave there. Now, verses 16 and following. Dan will produce judges who will rule in Israel. 
He'll also be like a serpent, a small, small tribe, small but deadly creature, likely referring to the future size of the tribe of Dan. Gad, in verse 19, will be engaged in constant conflict. Asher, in verse 20, will lead a charmed life, as will Naphtali, both receiving blessings that indicate they'll experience abundance. Then towards the end, we see Joseph in verse 22 and following. He receives the longest of the blessings. If you were to just take a step back and look at chapter 49 as a whole, you see, okay, two-verse blessing here, single-verse blessing here, another single-verse blessing here, and then you have these two big blessings to Judah and Joseph. So immediately you're like, these two are the most important. And notice the descriptions of fruitfulness for Joseph, if you just let your eyes fall over them. I think these describe what he's already been like, but also point forward to the future. Jacob goes on to describe how he was attacked throughout his life, but he remained steadfast because God upheld him. And according to Jacob, God would continue to help him. God would bless him with blessings of heaven above and deep below. Just abundant blessings on the head of Jacob, uh, of Joseph. Then in verse 26, Jacob seems to be saying that the blessings Joseph will, will receive are greater than the blessings received by Abraham and Isaac because of how God upheld him. Jacob then closes with a brief blessing on Benjamin, who's going to be like a wolf, warlike and predatory against his enemies, yet sharing the spoil with his brothers. Of all the blessings we've just looked at, clearly Joseph's is the most significant, uh, and that comes from the length and content of it, but even Joseph's pales in comparison to Jacob's blessing on Judah. Look at me back at verses 8 to 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Now this is clearly a play on his name, which means praise the Lord. The tribe of Judah will be a source of praise for the people of Israel. And likely because of what Jacob says next, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Now that image obviously Uh, reveals that the tribe of Judah will overcome Israel's enemies, but there's a deeper connection here that I want you to see. We want to learn the way that Scripture uses language and imagery to connect, make make theologically significant connections. Back in Genesis 3, verse 15, God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Now you have the tribe of Judah being praised for having his hand on the neck of Israel's enemies. Then in Numbers 24, when Balaam predicts a scepter rising out of Israel, he says that the scepter will crush the foreheads of Moab, Israel's enemies. These promises and these images are all tied together. God's promised redemption will come through the seed of the woman from the tribe of Judah, a king who will crush the serpent and the serpent's offspring. And because he will crush the serpent and his offspring his brothers will bow down before him. Notice how Judah has taken Joseph's place. Joseph predicted that his brothers would bow down to him, and they have on multiple occasions, and they'll even bow down to him again in chapter 50. But Judah and the tribe of Judah will be exalted over his brothers. Now keep looking with me, verse nine. Judah is a lion's cub. His offspring will be ferocious like a lion, a lion-like king. Now verse 10, 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah. From Judah will come a line of kings until finally a king will come from Judah who will hold that scepter forever and the nations will obey him. And notice, this king won't just rule over Israel, but over all nations. And we see from this prophecy, his rule as a king will bring abundance. Look at verse 11. He will bind his foal to the choice vine, his donkey to the choice vine. Choice vines, which produce the most succulent grapes, which produce the finest of wines, will be so common in this king's kingdom that you could tie your donkey to it and let him chew it up and it won't matter at all because there's such an abundance of choice vines and wine throughout the land. And you see how common wine will be in this king's kingdom. His garments will be washed in wine. Wine will flow so abundantly under his rule that it could be used to wash clothes in. I don't know what kind of detergent you're using, but it's probably not wine because it's going to stain everything, right? But these images are meant to call forth for us images of abundance. That are gonna, the, the type of abundance that's going to occur under this king's rule is unlike any type of abundance we've ever seen. And then finally, look at verse 12. This king will be beautiful. His eyes will be darker than wine. His appearance will be stunning. Can't help but think of Psalm 45, written about God's messianic king. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. That's the same king that Jacob is predicting will come from Judah. In latter days, in days to come, a lion-like king will come from Judah. This king will crush God's enemies. As a result, his people will praise him and bow down to him. His rule will be so wonderful that people from every nation on earth would worship and obey him, and he would usher in a reign of such abundance that the finest of wines can be used for the most common of purposes. We have to see how divinely inspired Jacob's blessing was as the various blessings and promises and predictions he gives come true in the lives of each of the tribes of Israel as a whole. I was gonna go back uh, through them before, but I'm gonna skip past them only to say that each of those short blessings that Jacob gives of his sons broadly comes to define each of their histories and futures. But the tribe to which all the other tribes would look was Judah. It was Judah that would take the place of prominence in Israel, being almost twice as large as the next largest tribe and being the tribe from which the kings of Israel would come. It was Judah that produced King David. The scepter will come from Judah. David, who was praised by his brothers for his sweeping victories against Israel's enemies. David, whose hand was on the neck of his enemies. Think of David and Goliath. David, who was like a fierce lion in battle, even protecting his sheep when he was a shepherd from the lion and the bear. And yet David was not the fulfillment of Jacob's blessing on Judah. You see this even if you look at David's reign as a king. As victorious as he was, he never ushered in a period of abundance and prosperity as was predicted by Jacob. 
nor did he ever come to receive the obedience of the nations. He may have won it by force, but they never came willingly to obey him. And that's because David was only a shadow of the king who was to come, the one who would truly crush his people's enemies, the one who would truly win obedience from the nations and usher in an age of abundance beyond our wildest imagination. And that king, friends, is none other than King Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one Matthew tells us is the son of David and son of Abraham, the long-awaited king to whom the scepter was given forever. And in Jesus, we see the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of Jacob's blessing on Judah. Right? It's Jesus who put his hand on the neck of Israel, Israel's enemies, not the surrounding nations that were at war with Israel, as most Israelites would have thought, but on Satan, the serpent who God promised would have his head crushed by the seed of the woman. And Jesus, I want you to see this, crushed the serpent, not by riding out into battle, but by laying down his life on the cross. Think about what Paul said in Colossians chapter two about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Speaking to the Colossian Christians, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you can hear these words as though Paul is speaking directly to you if you believe in Jesus today. And you who were dead in, the tra in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, Satan and his minions. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, I want you to track with what Paul is saying here. The power of sin was the law. Our inability to keep the law because of our bondage to sin meant that Satan could wield the law against us to constantly accuse us and hold us hostage to shame and guilt and condemnation. But King Jesus came to rescue us from shame and guilt and condemnation and from Satan's accusations, and he did that by bearing the judgment we deserve. On the cross, he bore the curse that the law demands in our place, thus rendering Satan's greatest weapon against us completely useless. When Satan comes to you to accuse you with the law, you can point to King Jesus and say, he paid my debt. That debt is gone. There is therefore now no condemnation for me in Christ. On the cross, King Jesus crushed the serpent's head. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. It's Jesus who came to bring abundance to God's people. What did he say in John's gospel? I came that they may have life and have it to the fullest. The abundance he would one day bring as the king who washes his garments in wine foreshadowed by his very first miracle in Cana where he turned common water into wine. 
The most common of things will become like flowing wine in his kingdom. Jesus is the lion-like ruler and warrior from the tribe of Judah who came to crush the serpent and bring abundant blessing to those who trust in him. If you want to think about a way to visualize what this was like when he came, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, the two towers, you see the, the Battle of Helm's Deep, when all of the orcs and Isengard are arrayed against Helm's Deep, and they are busting down the wall, and all of the terrible orcs are raiding the castle and killing the people, who shows up? The resurrected Gandalf the White comes shattering people with blinding light. The orcs flee running from him and he comes in and saves his people. This is a visual picture of what it was like when Jesus came to destroy the powers of darkness arrayed against God's people. He was running rampant over us. We had no way to stop Satan. He is bursting down the walls and they are flooding the castle until Jesus on high comes and says, stop. He puts an end to it. He crushes the serpent's head on the cross. Oh, friends, if you are here and you are not a Christian, I hope you see how utterly unlike earthly kings Jesus is. Jesus didn't come wielding a sword and demanding obedience by force. He came as the fullest expression of God's love for you. Right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Eternal, abundant life in a kingdom free from sin and death and sorrow, and disease, and hell. Though you and I have sinned against the almighty God who created us and gave us life, God did not respond by immediately judging us as he would have been right to do, but instead made the unbelievable decision to send his beloved son to die for us. There is no king like King Jesus. He is worthy of your complete trust, adoration, praise, and worship. That you shouldn't wait another minute to repent and put your trust in him. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus for salvation. And I want you to see, if you don't believe in Jesus today, how important it is that you do repent and turn from sin. Because this passage wasn't only fulfilled when Jesus came to die for our sins and rise from the dead. The ultimate fulfillment of this passage will come when Jesus returns a second time to judge the world for sin. I mean, think about what John says in Revelation 19 about what that day will be like and how it sounds so much like Jacob's blessing to Judah. John says, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury 
of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus returns a second time, he is returning in judgment. His robe will be stained with wine because he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He will bring judgment not only on Satan once and for all, but on all who followed Satan by rejecting God and choosing to live for themselves. Remember, Genesis 3.15, there will be enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. Who are the offspring of the serpent? They're those who oppose God and choose to be their own gods. When the son returns, he's coming in judgment for Satan and all who've lived that way. And listen, some of you may want to repent and trust in Jesus, but you think there's no, there's no way God would accept me. There's no way God would forgive me for what I've done. If that's you, I want you to see how this very passage shows us that redemption is possible. I want you to look again at verses five to seven of chapter 49. Jacob curses Simeon and Levi and says he will scatter them in Israel. This is the same tribe of Levi that God will later redeem and appoint to become the tribe who would serve as his priests in Israel. God delights to take sinners and turn them into saints. He delights to take people like Levi and turn them into a kingdom of priests who serve God by worshiping him with their whole lives. Not only that, but the redemption of the tribe of Levi and their appointment to serve as priests in Israel also shows us that we don't need to be defined by the lives and sins of our parents or grandparents. Friend, through faith in Jesus Christ, God makes us new creatures. The future descendants of Levi might have looked back and said, there's no way we can be redeemed because of what our forefather Levi did. But God is saying to them, no, no, I am appointing you as priests of my temple. I am redeeming you and giving you a new role and a new identity before me. That, that is the same thing that God does for us in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be defined by what people did before you. You don't even need to be defined by your own past. If you turn and trust in Jesus Christ, God delights to redeem. God delights to make us into priests in his kingdom who gives us a new identity and makes us new creatures. In Christ, behold, the old has passed away. The new has come. Put your trust in Jesus Christ today. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to consider what these chapters have to teach us. First, we see the call for obedience. To him, King Jesus, shall be the obedience of the nations. We'll look back at chapter 48, verse 15, at what Jacob says about Abraham and Isaac. He says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Think of Enoch who walked with God and was taken to heaven, or Noah who walked with God and obeyed all that God commanded. God's purposes have always been to gather a people for himself who walk with him by obeying him. That obedience begins with faith. Put your trust in Jesus. 
Faith is what brings us into right standing with God and immediately secures for us the blessings of justification, adoption, and every other spiritual blessing. But after putting our faith in God, God grants us his spirit and calls us by the spirit to walk in obedience to Christ, to our great king. He calls us to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to put on the new self, to turn away from lust and choose purity and holiness, to turn away from anger and choose kindness, to turn away from lying and choose the truth. How are you doing obeying God? Listen, nobody's gonna do that perfectly, but God has given us the power and the tools to choose righteousness over sin. And I want you to see that that obedience leads to abundance. Obedience leads to life and blessing. Think again of what Jesus said. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it to the fullest. Kids, teens, sin promises abundance. Sin promises joy. Sin promises hope and to comfort you and to be your best friend. But listen to Jesus. Sin is a thief. Sin steals and kills and destroys. Obeying Jesus isn't a life of burden where it's like, gosh, I just got to obey these commands. His commands are the way to life and abundant life, good life, true life, full life in this life now and even more so in the world to come. And we know that, won't, that we won't experience that fullness of abundant life until all things have been made new. But that full life of restored relationship with God, freedom from condemnation, is ours now. Yes, we will stumble and fall. Yes, we will sin from time to time. But when we do, we learn again that sin comes to steal and kill and destroy. We respond by obeying God, repenting seeking his forgiveness, and also seeking to walk in obedience to his commands. And I dare say that the more we walk in obedience now to King Jesus, the more we will experience that fullness that he came to bring now as we serve God with a pure conscience. Finally, not only does this passage motivate us to obedience, friends, it motivates our evangelism. King Jesus came to secure the obedience of the nations. But how is he securing it? He has given the church the task of sharing the good news of his holy, righteous, and abundance-producing reign through proclaiming the gospel to all nations. Isaiah 2 predicts that day when the nations would stream to Mount Zion. Acts 2 begins revealing the ongoing fulfillment of that vision, and Revelation 7-9 depicts the grand finale as Jesus' throne is surrounded by an innumerable multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation, and that grand finale is brought about through personal evangelism. This is why Paul says in Romans 1 that he received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. And that obedience of faith is secured through the proclamation of the gospel, the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Friends, God has given us a role to play in the spread of his kingdom. We get to tell people how they can be reconciled to God, redeemed from the curse of sin, freed from guilt and condemnation, and given the hope of everlasting life with Christ. I want you to think about who you can share that amazing news with this week. 
Be praying for those people and for those conversations. Be looking for those opportunities. Be plotting and scheming in the best of ways to share the gospel with your friends, neighbors, and coworkers. And this is why we're thinking about partnering with Campus Outreach on the campus of Maryland, because we want to see students there come to know, worship, and follow King Jesus. That's why we support international missions the way that we do, because God intends for Jesus' reign to extend from sea to sea. And as we support international missions and campus evangelism and participate in personal evangelism with people in our lives, we will stand in amazement as we watch God take Levi's and make them priests. As we watch God take what is foolish in the world's eyes to shame the wise. As we watch God take what is weak in the world's eyes to shame the strong. There's one thing this passage teaches us beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's that God doesn't work according to our expectations. And chapter 48 makes that abundantly clear as Jacob chooses not the older Manasseh, but the younger Ephraim to receive his blessing. Or God chooses in chapter 49, not the righteous Joseph, but the sinful Judah to extend his promises to. And we see it most fully in the cross. As God came not to force obedience with the sword, but by sending his son to win obedience by being pierced with a sword. And now on this side of the cross, we see God defy expectations as he chooses people to welcome into his kingdom, people like you and me. And to those people, God promises an inheritance that is beyond our wildest imagination, an inheritance that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth where we will flourish in perfect harmony under the reign of King Jesus forever, where we will praise him, and bow before him all the days of our never-ending lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy to us in Jesus Christ. We pray for the abundance of your riches in Christ to be poured out on us now, to keep us all the days of our lives, and to lead us into your kingdom once and for all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.